Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I have been chronicling life lessons and adventures since my very first day of sobriety in 2011, which seems like yesterday, but it was a while ago. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today's guest is Lisa Boucher, author of Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture a book that grabbed me from the first sentence of its introduction, where Lisa writes this, The women in my family bled all over each other. When we weren't hemorrhaging fear, we spent our time looking for an out. None of us knew how to feel and deal. Our one thought was escape, and the answer to every triumph or sorrow was drink this, swallow that. I realized there was no way I could outrun alcoholism. Her book, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture, is an award-winning book. It won the 2017 Best Books Awards in the category of Women's Health and placed as a finalist in the category of Addiction and Recovery. And Lisa is also a speaker. Now, after short stints where she trained polo horses, worked as a flight attendant, a hairdresser, and a bartender, she realized that the time to implement serious change had arrived. She gave up drinking, revamped her life, and settled in as a registered nurse, where living a life in recovery became her way. For the past 28 years, Lisa has worked with hundreds of women to overcome alcoholism, live better lives, and become better parents. She was prompted to write Raising the Bottom, when after 24 years of working in hospitals, she realized that doctors and traditional health care offered few solutions to women with addiction issues. She is dedicated to not only helping women recover from alcoholism, but has extended her reach to educate and help corporations deal with the growing addiction problem that has permeated every sphere of American life. An author of five books, she holds a Bachelor of Arts in English and is the mother of twin sons, and she currently resides in Ohio with her husband, and she joins me on the line now. Lisa Boucher, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you, Jean. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here, and I appreciate all that with the, that you're reading the introduction. So at least people have an idea what the book, where the book goes. Well, you have such a fascinating past. I mean, I feel like you've got another ten books in you, just <laughs> writing about all the adventures that you've had in life. But certainly, this is going to be the most important one you ever write because I know it's saving lives. In fact, I've heard from listeners who've encouraged me to have you on the show because the, the your book has been really important to them, too. So you're doing amazing things with this work. Well, thank you. It's good to know. I mean, I have gotten some letters and emails and contacted on Facebook. My favorite story was a woman who founded at the library in Tennessee, and she found me on Facebook, and she said, when she got to the, the last page or toward the end, there, I have this little picture of a logo that I've put on T-shirts and whatnot, and she said she saw that and had like a spiritual experience and said, that's going to be me. And she ended up getting sober, and she's still sober, and we're Facebook friends now. So that was really cool for me that actually, I don't know that I wrote the book saying I want people to get sober, I hope they get sober, but that was pretty amazing. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool if it could help one person because she's going to go on and help, you know, we, you know how it works in recovery. So everybody mm-hmm. just kind of branches out. Well, the ripple effect is amazing. And I know for me as a 
as a writer, a blogger, or as a writer of books and music and other things, it's solitary work. I mean, you often never get to see your reader or, or really know. So when someone tells you what your work has meant to them, that's pretty special to make it real and connect the dots for, for them and for you both. It's beautiful. Well, you're right, because you never know. I mean, especially, I think, with alcoholism, they said, like, books um, do well in the libraries because it's more, I don't know, that with Amazon, but I guess what this person was trying to say is that um, people are more comfortable checking it out of a library, maybe buying online now, but to go into a bookstore and, like, buy the big book. Who's going to want to do mm-hmm. that, right? So, right. I, I yeah. Think, yeah, that's what she was saying, that some people, because especially if you're deciding, do I need to quit drinking, don't I? That's such a, a raw time where, you know, the guilt, the shame, and the indecision and all of it plays such a role. So I think it's great that we can at least buy books online now and nobody has to know exactly what you're reading. Right, and that comes right back to the idea of raising the bottom is that the earlier we can get information into each other's hands, the you know the faster we can help each other heal. So we're going to talk all about that in a minute, but before I, before I take you down that track, I want our listeners to learn a little bit more about you. So before I start asking you questions, um, I'm going to just give you a few minutes and ask you, ask you to tell us about yourself and how it is that you came to be a woman in recovery at the age of 29. Well, I think it's because I had a mother who was an alcoholic, um, and, and I, ha- I can't really talk about my story without talking about her story. And so briefly, my mother back in the 60s when Valium was their pharmaceutical company's first billion-dollar drug, and so my mother was prescribed Valium. She was also an RN. Um, you know, she had four children living in the suburbs. My father was a businessman. Everything was just very normal, um, in quotes, and um, she started on the Valium. And, you know, I think we either have this disease or we don't because it grabbed her, I think, from the get-go. And she started to abuse the, the Valium. So my childhood was um, extremely chaotic because if there's, you know, an addict in the home. And, um, it, you know, there was, it was unpredictable. There was some violence because my father, I think, went, almost mad they say you know the person living with the alcoholic gets sicker than the alcoholic and I think that was true in our household my father had very little coping skills and he had some of his own issues I think I've always said because his mom died when he was little I just don't think he was nurtured so he didn't really have a good relationship with any of us it was just a really scary environment for a little kid so as my mother's addiction progressed, then she turned to alcohol, and then she had an extremely low bottom where she had an accident falling down the steps. But watching her addiction go on for 25 years, and she did try to find help, and they took her all over the place to psychiatrists and therapists and um, Cleveland Clinic and, you know, notable hospitals that were supposed to, what is wrong with her? And they misdiagnosed her as bipolar, as manic depressive. And I I just want to interject, I see this happening today. So that that kind of prompted 
one of the chapters in the book about doctors, nurses, and healthcare. Because what happened to my mother back in the 60s and 70s, I watch it play out all the time. And, and I think it was just a slow boil that sort of led me to finally figure out what, to, what was the message that I wanted in raising the bottom. And, you know, it's that you don't have to hit these low bottoms, but we also can't look to healthcare to fix us because they're as clueless now as they were back in the 60s. And still working in the environment, I can, you know, I feel like my 25 years of nursing has been really 25 years of undocumented research. And it's hard to watch, really, how, how badly the medical profession can muck up a life with their misdiagnosis and over-medication like they did with my mother. So her salvation came when she did have this accident and she ran into a doctor who was in recovery at a rehab because they finally pieced it together. She was drunk when she had her accident and they put her in rehab and then she started to get the help that she needed and and was accurately diagnosed as an alcoholic. And so my mother sobered up and she never looked back. I think she was so grateful to finally have someone say, this is what's wrong with you instead of, you know, getting pumped full of pills and her life was just spiraling down and down and down. And so I think when I got sober, my mom was seven years sober at the time. And I do remember she, um, she would like raise her eyebrows at little things, you know, or you'd hear her like clucking going, you know, Lisa, um, when I was a flight attendant and we were living in Dallas I was with my husband at the time. And she, I guess I was on the balcony and I popped a beer and it was only 10 in the morning, you know, and I justified it because I'm an early riser. So that, that struck her as something that maybe wasn't social drinking. And she, she had this funny story. She said, I knew there was something wrong with you when I came down. And she said, you made this pot of stew and you just plopped it on the table. You didn't even get the plates out. <laughs> I don't really remember that, but um yeah, so my mom, she was funny. She was just such a gem. She passed in 2011. But um, so, you know, she started to plant the seed kind of things. And, and, you know, I'd met her recovery friends when I would be home. And she had such an eclectic group of women that were in and out of the house because she was a fervent champion for recovery because she was in her, I think she was 48 when she got sober. And she was just so grateful to like, wow, she had her life back. So she became this amazing sponsor for a lot of women and and a speaker and whatnot. But um, she also then, I think in the year, maybe 89 is when I got sober, she had sent me a big book or maybe the year before, and I kind of chucked it in the closet. But in the inside, you know, she put, with love and prayers, um, love mom. And prior to that, though, I was I knew something wasn't right with me, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those alcoholics that ever tried to quit drinking. I never changed. Well, I did. I had to quit drinking tequila because I was just off the chain on that. So um, (laughs) (laughs) I decided like, oh, I can't drink that. But it wasn't because I thought I had a drinking where it's like, oh, that stuff, there's something wrong with it. So, and that was like years before I I quit drinking, but, you know, I didn't try all those things because I didn't get 
where I really had to. I, I do believe I was on a precipice. I, I, in my heart, I feel like I was a week away from not being able to stop ever. And I think that's why God or the universal spirit or whatever it is you want to call it, um, to me, it, it, it's God. I think he was saying, you're not going to get this if you wait. And um, so, you know, bouncing into rooms like adult children of alcoholics and some of them, I mean, it was hard in our, in our home, but there was some really tragic stories. And so I didn't relate well to there. I mean, I'd had some abuse with my father being physically abusive and, you know, we were all emotionally traumatized with just his screaming, more him. And then my mother, I think, just being emotionally unavailable or passed out. I mean, I have a lot of memories of her lying on a couch and we're, like, trying to get her eyes open, like, pulling her eyelids up, going, Mom, my God. And, you know, she wasn't sleeping. She was zonked out on Valium. So I remember that. And I, I just don't think – we were nurtured. I mean, I, we, me and my, and my siblings, I don't think we were nurtured well. And, um, you know, that affects you later in life, I think, with relationships and all sorts of things that I've had to work on in recovery because I was more loner and very comfortable with um, and very independent. Um, you know, just you learn that as a child. We were all very independent. So I think, though, with my mom being sober that seven years, her saying a few little things here and there, and I just started to kind of put it together because I knew I was drinking too much. Was I drinking every day? No. Was I getting drunk every time I drank? No. And so, but internally, I was completely falling apart, Um my moods, you know, I was either raging or crying or laughing. It was just, I was all over the board. And, and my husband, he said, well, I'm, I, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you need to get yourself together because something's not right. And so I knew it was the alcohol because it's like when I wasn't drinking, I seemed to be fine. And then after I put a few drinks in me, it was just the emotional um up and down like a roller coaster. I was so labile. So I thought, well, I'll go home to my mom's. I live about five hours away or did. Um, and I told her, yeah, I think I'm going to, you know, I need to come home. And so that's kind of what started the journey. And that was in April of 89. And then I had a one day relapse in June because, um, I chose this 12-step route, and what I did is I went to meetings every day, but I didn't really do anything else. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't really read the literature. I didn't really buy into it because it's very hard, or it was for me, to really commit to this, am I an alcoholic, when you don't drink every day. And so I sat there for three months and compared myself right out of the room. And when, you know, back in 89, I will tell you, there were no Facebook groups like there are now. There were none of these right. amazing podcasts like yours. Um, they they weren't there, or if they were, I didn't know about them. So 
it wasn't, you know, there wasn't that kind of accessibility. And so there was a lot of men in the recovery rooms, and a lot of them had drank, you know, I heard story after story of men who were drinking a fifth a day for 20 years. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, I don't even belong. I couldn't relate to any of it because that is not at all how I drank. But um, I kept going, and there, there were some women, don't get me wrong, there were some women, just not to the degree that I see now, um, you know, and even the young people that you see now, which is fabulous. It's, it's fabulous to see. But um, so, yeah, so it was just kind of a different environment at the time. And then I had that one day relapse, and I remember standing in the meeting, and, and we're saying the prayer at the end, and I'm thinking, I'm going across the street, and I'm going to get go to Quigg's, it was called at the time, and I'm going to get some beer, and that's what I did. So I sat at the bar, because I like to drink in the bars. I was not drinking in my closet or hiding it in my car. I was out in the bars, and I was drinking it openly, um, and that's how I drank at home, very openly, and I did all my drinking before I had my children, though, thank God. But so, you know, after this one-day relapse and then on the way after the, the bar, I went through the drive through I had a thing with drive throughs It's like I couldn't not pull into them. So, and then I bought wine, and then I went home and drank it and got commode-hugging sick, which is really – it was unusual because it wasn't like I'd had that much, you know, a bottle of wine and a few beers. But something about that just, I decided, okay, this is not what I want. This is not, you know, I mean, I couldn't get my life together. You listed all those things I'd done. You know, I'm training horses. I'm a flight attendant. I'm a bartender. I'm a hairdresser. I'm in and out of college for 10 years and can't pull it together. And, you know, I'm watching my friends move on with their lives. They're graduating college, and I'm still going. And that's how my alcoholism started to manifest. And I think had I not had a mother who was in sobriety, I don't know that that would have concerned me or I would have looked at it like that. I probably would have and could have kept drinking another 10 or 15 years and went through even more madness. And, you know, maybe went the doctor route, got on medication. Who knows what my path would have been um, had my mother not had such a low bottom. But after that day, I thought, you know, this is, I, I just, I have to do something. I have to do something. And that um, when I went back to recovery rooms, it was like in how it works, that one line, the result is nil until we let go absolutely. And I heard it that day. I mean, I'd heard it 90 other times, but that day I heard it and it was like a switch, you know, went off in my brain and I haven't looked back since. And I'm very, very grateful that I was able to see what I needed to see when I saw it. Well, talking about your childhood, I mean, it was traumatic. I mean, you didn't just have a car accident as a kid with your mom, you had multiple <laughs> experiences. I mean, you say your predominant emotion as a child was really fear because you were often put in dangerous situations. And I was shocked actually reading about your childhood. It was almost, you know, I thought, oh my God, this could almost be like a dark comedy montage with the 
car accidents and mom's under the table asleep and the food in the oven is on fire and these kids are just running wild. And, I mean, you could laugh or cry, right? I mean, as you say, you were just, you were surviving on your own. We were, Jean. And I I played it down, believe it or not, when you read that, like people are like, oh my gosh, I said, I played it down because, you know, when I was writing that, I, it was, I was laughing, I was crying, I was sitting there going, did this really happen? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, because, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure, would feel that way if they put their crazy childhoods or whatever on paper. But, you know, when it's in our head, it doesn't seem as real maybe, but right. it was, yeah. yeah, it was crazy. I mean, my sister, you know, she said she she stopped going to Girl Scouts because she was just too scared to get in the car with my mom. It was a daily occurrence of side-swiping mailboxes, jumping curbs, you know, crashing through the garage door, crashing through the garage wall, hitting other cars. I mean, it was it was constant. And I still have a, a little PTSD about driving. I get really nervous if people are driving to, you know, like even with my husband, most of the times now we used to fight so much, it's like I drive. <laughs> because I can't stand. <laughs> it's just so much easier. Like, I'll let her drive, you know. Unless we're on really road trips, then we both. But around town, and then he drives me crazy because he, he seems distracted. So I'm like, just let me drive. And and it works much better because it's like we were terrified. <laughs> and you were able to leverage that trauma, though. That became your motivation of just knowing how awful it is to live with someone who's like that even though you didn't have children yet when you got sober knowing what it's like to live with a person who is so unpredictable that became your motivation but what I find interesting is that your sister who's also in recovery um, she wasn't able to leverage that it took her a lot longer and she had a much lower bottom um and as you say, you know, you were raised in the same home and you had sort of the same exposures. But I'm just curious about, um, you know, without judgment, I mean, just as kind of a observation, why do you believe it's possible for, for one sibling to get it and the other one not to? And how did that affect your relationship with your sister? Wow. Well, okay, here's what I'm starting to believe. Number one, my sister... She started into her addiction very young. Um, I think what saved me, Jean, and this is kind of my new focus now, is I don't know if you're familiar with ACE, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences. And Mm. I believe I'm getting, in fact, I think I'm going to get certified as an ecotherapist because I'm very interested in how nature is so healing. And I think the what saved me, and I have a brother, and this is why, I mean, this is unscientific, but in our family, there's four of us. My brother and I spent enormous of times, amounts of time outside. So I had the horse. And even as a little kid, five years old, I was riding my bike a mile down the road because there was this huge um, dairy farm. They, well, they had cows and they had horses, so they had and I would ride down there, and that's where I spent my time. I mean, I was even, you know, I'd ride my bike. I was supposed to be going to piano lessons, and I'd keep on going, and I'd go to the barn, and I'd get on this little pony. I'd 
chase them around the field. And so I was outside from the time I was five. And then when I had my horse, you know, I rode through, I had an idyllic place to ride. I don't know if you read any of that yet in the book, but, you know, Mm -hmm. there were orchards, there were um, just a ton of land, miles and miles and miles. So I believe nature saved me, and, and I believe it saved my brother. And I have an older sister, and she also is in addiction, but she's a very functional alcoholic, and I don't see her ever stopping. And, and she's um, one of those women that have never, she seems to, she's on her third marriage. She's found, you know, she's in a very good place financially, so there's never any consequences. And I, I like I said, I think it'll her alcoholism will affect her mentally with dement, early dementia or something like that. Um, and I think that's why my my other sister she didn't um, she spent a lot of time you know indoors with friends, locked in a bedroom, listening to music, um, that kind of thing. So she she didn't like exercise. She didn't want to be outside. She didn't want to come to the barn. She didn't want to do any of those things. And even now, she I mean, she has spent, I was reading a thing just the other day that said 87% of, of adults spend the majority of their life indoors. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. this is contributing immensely to the, the anxiety and depression and nervousness that people have. You know, we, we are meant to be in the lap of nature. And so to answer your question, Jean, I believe it was my relationship with the outdoors as a kid. And even now, I mean, I crave it. I crave being outside. I've made a point of like in my house to bring the outdoors in. I love nature. I, I need to be around it. Um, I take, you know, like I, I go to this silent monastery and I love going there and it's just surrounded by nature and places that I picked to go, you know, I mean, I'd love to visit a city, but I, I wouldn't want to live there in all that concrete and cement. It's just, I need green and I need a place and places where I can go to spend time with that. And it just restores me. I think, the, you know, they say it's phytoscience. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Phytoscience are a chemical that the tree gives out that, boosts our immunity, helps with depression, anxiety, um, you know, all of these really healing things. And and years ago, back in the 1800s, you know, doctors, you go to the doctor and they write a prescription for taking in the fresh air and going on walks. And, and I also read there's a physician in D.C. who was starting to prescribe park therapy and telling his patients, I guess he scoped out these parks that he likes. And so he says, okay, you go to this park for 20 minutes, three times a week, and I want you to walk this trail. And I think it's brilliant because, you know, from working in the hospital and seeing a lot of people getting a lot of medication, most of them do better. You know, they keep coming back because they're not doing well. So... I really think, yeah, I think it's the nature. I think there'd be a lot less ADD and children and all that if more nature and physical activity and exercise were were introduced. And I, I'm convinced that is what saved me. 
I love that perspective, Lisa, but I'm thinking of all these listeners we might have who are cuddled up in their jammies, you know, under a blanket, (laughs) thinking, don't make me go for a hike. I don't want to go for a run. So maybe we could soften it for them and say, like, put a hammock outside. (laughs) Exactly. in a hammock. Well, there's this little, I was walking, and there was like this little place where like these trees just kind of make like a little dome shape. And even if you just go stand, they say even standing or lying in the hammock, like you suggest, under a canopy of green. It's really just Mm -hmm. being under the green that is therapeutic. And, you know, they call Mm -hmm. Shinrin-yoko, which is forced bathing in Japanese word for forest bathing, and all it oh, really I've means never is, heard of that. yeah, <laughs> yoko. I mean, the Japanese have done a lot of studies on nature and how healing it is, and especially for children and people who have been traumatized. Um, you know, just think about it. Would you rather sit in a sterile room under fluorescent lights or look at a computer screen? or be in the lap of nature. I mean, it's almost like a no-brainer of which one even sounds more soothing. You know, I have to tell you, I'm from Alberta, Canada, and um, I'm from a, a part of the prairies that's just, it's wide open. I mean, the only trees you see are the ones that were planted by humans. So literally, wow. you this is one of these places where, you know, your dog runs away from home and you can watch it for three days. I don't know if you've ever heard that joke. So I'm literally surrounded by a blue dome of sky here. I mean, it is wide open. And for me, being outside is um, I, I feel right-sized when I'm outside because the sky is so big and the world is so big that it helps me remember where I fit into everything. Oh, I love that. And and you're right when you're in, like, big sky country out west. I'm in Ohio, so we don't have those big horizons like you're talking about. But mm-hmm. I think you're right. I mean, you can – Step out into nature under a sky, and it it helps us, I think, get a perspective that you cannot get from sitting in your house or in your car or in a restaurant. You know, it's just different. That is great advice. I love that suggestion. But I want to talk, turn our conversation back to you a little bit more because um, there's a lot of interesting stuff I'd like to get to before um, I let you go today. Um, one of the wise suggestions that we often hear for people in their first year of sobriety is not to make any big life decisions or changes. So just work on our own transformation and then see how we fit into our own life from there. But you didn't have that luxury. Um, you were, I think, just two weeks sober. <laughs> and things changed dramatically for you. So um, tell us about your first uh, weeks, months, and year of, of sobriety. Oh, boy, if I can remember. Okay, so I remember I said I had that three months sober, one day relapse, and then I got on board. So in June 22nd, 89 was my sobriety date. Two weeks later, I find out that I'm pregnant. And then about another month after that, I found out I'm pregnant with twins. So that was pretty <laughs> scary. <laughs> it was pretty scary. I mean, you're talking to a girl who had never babysat, not once, ever, 
<laughs> who had no clue. I mean, none. I had zero experience with even like little kids. So I'm pregnant with twins. Then I start having, you know, all these complications, spotting and bed rest. And so that was a huge challenge to be in early recovery. And I'm in the hospital for like toward the end there. I was let me see, the babies were due in April. I went into labor in January. So between January and I ended up having them in March, I was pretty much in and out of the hospital constantly. I'd be in, on bed rest, you know, in the hospital for three weeks. I'd come home for a day or two and then be right back in. So I'm kind of going batty. And what I had to do was swallow my pride. There was, at the time, where the hospital where I had my children, there was a treatment center turning point that was affiliated with the hospital. And that's now currently, I think, an outpatient type thing. But they had inpatient. And so I told my doctor, this is that willingness. I, I told him, I said, look, you need to write an order that somebody has got to wheel me over the other side of the hospital to the AA meeting. And, and I'm sure he was taken aback, I'm, you know, and I just didn't care. Like I said, and this was back before recovery was kind of the chic or, or popular thing to do. And I, um, I just didn't care. I thought this is what I have to do because it was very difficult. I mean, I have a lot of energy and I'm young and I'm not sick. I'm there, you know, I feel fine. I just keep going into labor, so I have to stand these IVs and lay down to keep everything calm so I don't have these babies too early. So that was a huge challenge, and I will say there were some amazing women that did rally. They'd bring meetings. They'd come visit me. They got me at a needle point, and I made, oh, my God, my kids did not have the same bib for like a year and a half, you know, <laughs> <The same> bib <laughs> every day. <laughs> And you had twice as many bibs to go through as as most of us. Yeah, (laughs) needle pointing baby bibs. So, you know, because it wasn't any Pinterest or any of that stuff. So, I got through it though, and 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 the babies were born just three weeks early, and got to come home from the hospital. So it was all worth it. And then they were six months old when I had this realization. You know, it's like okay. Here I am. I'm married. My husband's a professional. He, you know, but I, I think because of my childhood, I wasn't going to be dependent on anybody. And um, I thought, you know, like I said, I'd been in out of college for ten years. It was time to get it together. And so I, it was another God moment in my life. After the kids were three months, my babies were three months old. I ended up back in the hospital with a blood clot, and during that hospital stay a woman who I knew from the recovery rooms comes waltzing into my room with a water pitcher and I'm like oh my goodness what are you doing and she said I'm in nursing school and she was working um you know as, as an assistant and she, we talked for just a few minutes and she left the room and I rolled over and picked up the phone and got myself ready to start school three months later in that fall <laughs> And I thought that's that's what I'm going to do. I need to. I, I I wanted a job, and and I mean truly, it wasn't because I'm this amazingly caring person. It you know I had to have like a practical motive. Was I thought I need a job that I can have some flexibility, that I could work part time maybe, and still make enough that I could pay childcare, 
and I could also work full-time if I have to, and that's why I decided, and so I went to nursing school. And so that first year of sobriety was a bear. But then looking back, Jean, because I was so, am I an alcoholic, aren't I? Am I, aren't I? You know, I kept trying to play it down. And I think having that structure, I mean, for, for three years, my life was, school, my son's meetings, and the grocery store. And that was it. I mean, my life was a very small circle. But I really believe, looking back, that had I not had that structure and had to be disciplined like that, because I had zero discipline. They say alcoholics are undisciplined. I was incredibly undisciplined. And I still kind of am. I mean, I'm disciplined, but I show up at my job, and I do what I'm supposed to do. But as far as, like, do I live a structure, like I'm going to do laundry every Tuesday, do my groceries? Oh, my goodness, no. I can't. I have to have a little, like, a lot of free spiritness in there, or it just spins me out of control. So, but that year, three years of discipline, at least got me to where I think I grew tremendously in that, those three years in having to be disciplined and knowing that I can do it when I have to do it. So it was I, a I feel like that was, it was a struggle, but I feel like it helped support your sobriety too, because I mean, that is what really any recovery is all about, is sort of putting a framework in place that you can bounce around inside of and have some freedom to exercise your sobriety or some, like it's a structure that holds you up in I love that. in a time mm-hmm. where you're, you, you really need it. And um, I feel like when someone has had a low bottom, a 12-step program is a really good fit for them because it can be quite rigid if you need it to be. And um, I feel like when you, you know, if someone has a higher bottom, I feel like the lower you go, the fewer choices you have. And mm-hmm. that you get the the fewer choices you have, then the more rigidity you need. And um, that's what I really love about the, the idea of raising the bottom is that, you know, if, if we quit earlier in the trajectory, we do have more options, um, but because of your trauma and, as you say, your energetic nature and everything else you had going on, the structure of AA really helped you during a time where everything was crazy. And I wanted to talk about the difference between the the type of drinking that you experienced, which was more episodic binge drinking, versus how it manifested in my life, which was daily drinking, I I was never, um, like, no one really knew I had a problem. I was maintenance drinking quietly every day and rarely appearing drunk. So I didn't fight with anybody. I didn't, you know, I never flashed my boobs at anybody. (laughs) I have no good stories to tell, you know. Like, well, there was this one day I spoke a little too loud. but (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Nothing happened, but when I do, I have heard that for people like me, because my drinking was so routine, um, it's a little bit easier to build a, a system that helps you quit because when you you can change the routine. But for a binge drinker, you never know. It's like Russian roulette. You just you never know when it's going to smack you in the head or when a what's going to trigger you. So how did how did that play into those years for you? 
Well, I don't know, Jean, if I would say I was a binge. I mean, because like I, I did say, I didn't drink every day, but I was drinking at least four, four or five times a week. So I, I really couldn't predict, though, if I would binge. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like yeah. if you were maybe the kind of person who's quietly drinking your wine all day. Well, yeah, I was, I would binge. I was drinking more often, but then, yeah, sometimes I would go out and truly have only a few drinks. And then the very next day I might have way, you know, I'm having 10 drinks and I'm a drunk mess. So that's kind of how it was for me. But I think because, you know, well, like when I was flying, that kind of drinking fits into a flight attendant's lifestyle very well. So it didn't really seem all that abnormal compared to others. And so it was more, again, like that internal disintegration. I just never really felt settled. But I think I crossed the line into alcoholism when we moved from Dallas back to Ohio and I went back to my marketing job, which was a, a nine to five Monday through Friday gig. And I just could not deal with the normalcy of a nine to five routine. I thought I would lose my mind. And that's when I started to hit the bars at lunchtime and after work. And that's when my alcoholism started to really speed up. Um, you know, again, it was still, I had some control because I wasn't always drinking. I didn't wake up and drink, but I was getting to where I was about ready to lose control and lose it fast. And I just know that in the marrow of my bones, I had this one moment where I was, I, I, when I was at my marketing job there, I was downtown. And so there, I had this, my favorite little bar was just like a block away and I'd go there at lunch and have a couple of beers or a few drinks or whatever. But this one morning, I went over and I'm like furiously pulling on this door and I'm like horrified because I feel like it's noon and I'm wondering why my favorite place isn't open at lunch like it always is. And I look at my watch and it was 10 a.m. So that Mm -hmm. was one of those things that really hit me hard. Um, And I started the dialogue of maybe I have a problem. And then that kind of went on for several months. But those kind of things started to, you know, like, wow, that, that just really seemed like something an alcoholic would do. And um, it was getting harder to justify those kinds of aha moments that I started to have. We were able to kind of look back and talk about some red flags that you, that you saw. Um, what are some things just, you know, off the top of your head, like if I were to say to you, how do I know if I have a problem? What are some things to look for that you advise the women that you work with to, to watch? Um, I think um, it, a lot of problems in relationships, um, maybe compromising. I think women that do a lot of people-pleasing end up using alcohol because they're really resentful about it. I think it's a red flag when you go along with things that maybe don't really resonate with your soul, like these women that are drinking. Um, okay, here's a perfect example. Bachelorette parties. They've turned into four-day drink-a-thons. I don't mm-hmm. think it's normal drinking. And so 
if you're one of those bachelorettes or one of those bridesmaids and you don't feel okay about this, but you go along with it anyway, you might have a problem because I, I think we have those antennas that deep within us that try to tell us, but we, we shut that little voice down. So I think, again, I think relationship problems, going along with things that you're really not comfortable with, coming home from work and pouring a, a glass of wine every night is is definitely in the red flag zone. Um, if you're sitting at work and it's noon and you're thinking about that bottle of wine that you're going to buy on the way home, that's problematic. If you will only go to places where you can get alcohol, that's problematic. If every weekend you have, if all your activities are around alcohol, that's problematic. I mean, I've talked, I haven't found an alcoholic yet who said they would go places or to a party that didn't serve alcohol. So I think that says a lot right there. And with our culture Mm -hmm. being what it is, you know, people, it's so easy to justify the drinking. But if you really think about it, these people and, and women in particular that say, oh, I can't have a problem, but then would they really want to go somewhere that doesn't have alcohol and maybe stay in that place the whole weekend without any access to alcohol? That probably would tell you right there if you have a problem. Because somebody yeah. who's truly a social drinker would be fine with that. You know, it might be some really cool, let's say, spa like nature place, okay? Well, there's no alcohol within 50 miles. You're not going to get someone who might be in the red flag zone who's going to agree to go there without either taking their own stash or <laughs> taking a pass, right? They're going to I would have taken stash. my own stash and booked my own room so no one exactly. could drink. That's what I would exactly. Right. <laughs> and lied about so, it. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think those kinds of things, and even, Jean, before you were drinking like heavily, maybe toward the end, even, you know, a year or two before that, when it's just the warning zone, most women aren't, you know, if you have a problem, you're not going to do that. You know, you're, like you said, you're going to take your own stash and maybe you'll be open about it, but you're going to joke and laugh and make sure that you're with somebody else who's going to co-sign on that. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. you're not going to be with teetotalers that would be like, oh, no, we can't do that. Or, you know, look at you crazy. Just rule followers, yeah. Right. It, it, I mean, we tend to find our people who drink like us. I remember asking my, my one BFF at the time, do you think I have a problem? Do you think I drink too much? And, of course, she would unequivocally say, of course not. And, you know, this is what we do when you start having those little voices in your head wondering mm-hmm. if you drink too much. Yes, you drink too much because normal social drinkers don't even question it. One of my friends, I, I asked her that question, and she said, well, if you're an alcoholic, what am I? I mean, we drink together. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I don't want her to think I think she's an alcoholic, so I guess I better keep drinking. <laughs> like, talk about being a people pleaser. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. I mean, there's a, there's can... another section in your book that talks about fear and how fear can be a red flag and motivating a lot of women. And boy, this this really resonated with me. So I just want to read a couple of parts from it that I think our listeners will 
will connect with. You say fear can show up as a control freak who tries to micromanage everyone's life, including family, coworkers, lovers, spouses, and friends. This woman wants to control the uncontrollable. She's terrified of letting go. Fear may also show up as a perfectionist. This is the woman who fears she won't be good enough and genuinely wants people to like her. However, she may go about it the wrong way. She will force um, she she forces her will on people, places, and situations that she has no business trying to control. And when people push back, this same woman cries and wonders why everyone is so mean. And then you go on to say that fear can show up uh, as low self-esteem. Um, or uh, people that are afraid to make mistakes, fears of taking responsibility for decisions because then uh, you can't claim the victim role and you'll be held accountable. And then there's the gal, this is me, who fears she will never have enough security, stature, or contentment, so she grabs for more and more to help her feel secure. Her expectations are off the charts. She demands the outcome of her choice, and when she doesn't get it, you will pay. She hasn't learned to ask for what she needs, so instead she expects you to intuitively know what she needs and then provide two to sweets. <laughs> uh, you go on to talk about it. She wants the best house, the best car, the best jewelry. And so for me, it wasn't super status conscious, but I just like go, 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 reach, reach, reach. Um, no one can live up to her impossible standards and eventually exhausted because even she can't keep up with her high standards. Um, to the outside world, she may appear entitled and vain and narcissistic when she really battles a deep insecurity. She thinks that having more of everything will fill the hole in her soul. I can go on to talk about the martyr and just all the different ways that fear can show up. And I think so many of us drink to stay one step ahead of the fears, the voices in our head that are just a little too true. And I always talk mm -hmm. about, for me, one thing I really tried to drink to blackout was an, a moment before when my head hit the pillow and it was just me and, and God. You know, that moment before I fell asleep mm -hmm. where I couldn't busy my way out of just, you know, the truth of who I am and, and just being quiet with my thoughts. And that was really my goal every night was to just drink enough that I would just instantly fall asleep a moment before that happened. And um, so that part of your book really spoke to me, and it has nothing to do with drinking, nothing to do with drinking. It's all the ways that fear shows up in other ways in our life. And, and the fact is the world rewards women for that. They reward us for being workaholics and for being, you know, all of the dream-chasing things you talk about doing in your own life. The world will say, oh, that Lisa, she's a go-getter. <laughs> mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. How do we sort out these messages? Well, you know, I think it comes back to we have got to get, I had to get a sense of self, you know. I, I don't know if you read the letter where my, my son, I contributed because he surprised, but he said, Mom, you were authentically just you, and that's something mm. I need to work on, he said. Um, because of the people-pleasing, the I think we have to just be okay and quit looking outward because that stuff never works. And so, you know, why did I start drinking? Why did you start drinking? We're self-medicating. All of these, like I said, my childhood messages, I don't think I was ever 
you know, encouraged or any of that. So you, you grow up with this self-esteem that's already not good. It's down in a puddle on the ground. So then you start drinking and, and all these personas. I mean, I can't, when I got sober, who was Lisa Boucher? I don't really know. I mean, it took recovery and, you know, the, the familiar euphemism of peeling away the the onion layers. And it took mm-hmm. time for me to, like, let go of all of the messages and who women are supposed to be and what kind of mother I was supposed to be. And I just started getting, you know, through the recovery process where I was really liking who I was. And so I didn't care. I mean, my my kids, somebody gave me a big box of hand-me-down clothes, and that's what they wore for the first year other than their, (coughs) excuse me, a few little outfits that I had bought them and I was perfectly fine with that, you know, and I knew then I was growing because I wasn't out making sure they had to look perfect so I could feel okay. And that Mm -hmm. was huge for me to realize that, you know what, I've got these rambunctious little baby boys and I'm in school and my husband will kind of, you know, we don't have the money and I'm not going to go buy all this stuff. Pardon me. So, that was when I started to, you know, realize, okay, I'm changing. And it's just these messages. I think we have to put, like, blinders on and just work through our own issues because we all have something that has, you know, a narrative that we've grown up with or that we've created in our own heads of mm-hmm. who we are. And, and, and it's not true. None of it is true. But we have believed it for so mm-hmm. long that you're, you know, reacting instead of making choices. It's like I was reacting to how am I supposed to be? What is this supposed to, you know, and, and a lot of it I think is subconscious. You don't even realize you're doing it. And so, oh, for sure. I, yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's just like the messages I do, yeah. like in the world for women, drink and you have to drink and the only way to have fun. I mean, the, these big alcohol companies are doing a fabulous job of marketing to women and ruining lives. They've got women believing that we can't have fun or the only way to relax. Oh, my goodness. The only way to relax is to lie around with a glass of wine in hand, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it's really sad that these are the, the messages that keep, they're perpetuated and women are acting on it. And, you know, the, the yoga and wine and the painting and wine and all of that. So you're scared to death to go to yoga. Well, no problem. Now you don't have to worry about if you can touch your toes because you can have some wine and you won't care. You'll just fall off. <laughs> that goes back to, you know, people don't want to do things if they can't drink at it. So let's introduce alcohol into every event so that people will come. <laughs> Right, <laughs> even so if it has crazy. no business so being they there. Afraid to come now, because you yeah. know, then you you pre-drink. So as long as there's alcohol, you don't have to worry about it. nobody's going to smell it. And it's it just kind of perpetuates the whole insecurity. I mean, how many people do I know that couldn't walk into a room or a party without having a few drinks before they got to the party? I mean, mm-hmm. that right there says, okay, that person doesn't feel okay about themselves. I mean, I used to drink before I'd go to a party because I wasn't, you know, it, it gets rid of that 
those jittery nerves or the social anxiety or whatever. So, I mean, that kind of stuff is really highly encouraged that we do that sort of thing. And I think it just sends women and men the wrong message. So nobody has to really have coping skills anymore because alcohol is like the new go-to coping skill for everything. Right. Yeah. Um. It's a little crazy. I, I, I think sometimes um, I'm, I've thought of your mom as I was reading this book and, and how she um, helped so many women. She became such a lighthouse. I mean, especially for someone with such a low, low bottom. Boy, she sure made up for lost time with all the people that she helped and how bright she shone her light. I couldn't help but thinking how she would be so happy for you and um, your family members to be recovering in this time of incredible connection and information through the internet, through podcasts, through ebooks. I mean, like you were saying earlier, you know, someone maybe doesn't want to go into a bookstore and and walk out with a stack of books that say learn about alcoholism, but they can download it and and read it and they can read blogs and they can learn so much from home. Things have really changed, and as many ways as there's negative things about our culture right now, there's a lot of positives right now too. And um, just looking back on how things have changed so much since your childhood and everything your mom went through, pretty amazing. I do want to talk a little bit about your mom before we go because she was quite instrumental. She she really encouraged you to write a book. She said, you know, women are suffering. You you need to help them. You need to write this book. And one of my favorite parts of your book is that you actually are so fortunate that you have speaker tapes of your mom uh, sharing her story, and you were kind enough to include transcripts of one of her speaker tapes um, in your book. And I just was so happy for you and a little bit jealous that you would have that because what an amazing thing to have to have such insight from a parent for me one of the most striking parts of that passage was how lovingly your mother talked about your dad how romantic they sounded (laughs) and so clearly in love later in the in their life despite the chaos of your childhood and the fact that they fought bitterly every day when you were growing up so I'm just hoping you can maybe talk a little bit about the transformation of your mom and dad's relationship after she got sober. Oh, wow. I mean, it was startling. So she, um, I remember when she came home from rehab, I was living in Columbus. She was in Youngstown. So I go see her, and she's got the screws in her head and the big halo on because she had a broken neck. And my father is still deer in the headlights and still, um, you know, in his raging mode because I, I think he's freaked out by all of it, quite frankly. So, but as the years went on, my mother, she got strong quickly. And it was like, I think her getting well gave my took a lot of the pressure off my father. You know, looking back, like I said, I don't think he had any coping skills. So he's terrified of this woman who is going to burn down the house because she's smoking and she's drinking and she's wrecking cars and she's got these four kids and blah, blah, blah. And he's no help whatsoever, none whatsoever, other than to scream because she's doing a terrible job of keeping everybody safe. But he's not helping her. He's just 
hindering it, and he's the, the turpentine on the plane. So once she sobers up, though, I think a lot of his fear drained away, plus as kids were all grown and out of the house. So I, I don't know those early years for them exactly how that played out, but I do know my father, when he would start into one of his rage modes, she got very good at shutting it down. And um, I think he started to trust that she was going to stay sober, things were going to be okay. You know, she quit working, so she became just uh, a housewife then. I think he liked that, that, um, you know, my dad was old-fashioned. I think he really liked coming home to a wife that had the dinner cooking and there's flowers and the windows are shiny and the house is clean, and I think he really enjoyed that. And so Ooh, that I'd enjoy that too. Exactly, which I said <laughs> every great. woman's a wife, right? Every woman's yeah. a wife too. So I think he just got really comfortable in that. And then they started doing, they literally traveled the world for a number of years and, you know, went to China and Bali and Africa and all over the place. So I think they reached a place that he was able to trust and my mother was strong enough to combat his craziness. And she just started shutting a lot of it down. Now, don't get me wrong, they still fought. Um, they'd have some blow-ups now and then, but it was certainly not the day-to-day angst that we had when us kids were growing up. It was just a total free-for-all on every level with everybody, you know. So I think it was just her being sober. Having so, Having just read that passage from your book, um, here where I talked about all the different ways that fear can show up for women. It's interesting to hear you say that fear was largely behind a lot of your dad's anger. And oh, there's no doubt in my mind that it was. Yeah. I think he he was. I mean, he my dad's still alive. He's in his 80s. But, you know, and he said it was he'd go out of town anyway, but he would be scared the whole time he was gone. And that's when she had the one car accident where she never hit the brake. I mean, I think I open up with that in one of the chapters because truly, I mean, I see the red light, my brother sees the red light, and she does not even hit the brake. And the whole front of the end of the, you know, front end of the car was mm-hmm. gone. And mm-hmm. so when she kept saying, Lisa, right, but when I was writing fiction, because I have a couple other books, you know, that are five others, four others that are fiction. But it took this long, Jean, to get like, there's so many things you can talk about in recovery. But the message I really wanted to impart was we don't have to hit low bottoms. We can get sober. Even we can be an alcoholic but look like our life is great because there's a lot of functional alcoholics out there. And so that's the market and the women that I wanted to portray. That's why, you know, I have the doctors and nurses and mothers and the stories at the back of the book, because these are everyday people and teachers. You know, there's a lot of alcoholism among teachers for whatever reason. And these are the people that we interact with in our everyday life and how many of them might be suffering. So I thought, you know, if they can read stories that sound more like them instead of, like I was saying earlier, when I got sober, it was hard to relate to these men who were hard, drinking, fifth, you know, that kind of thing. And so I picked people like myself, like you, Jean, that, you know, you're living this 
quiet, desperate life of alcoholism, but from the outside, everything looks amazing or fine or normal. And, you know, I don't think there's enough of these stories out there because so many of these dramatic low bottoms, especially now with the heroin epidemic and all that. And I'm, you know, one of my other big, big points I want to make is, look, I'm tired of all the attention about the heroin because if we can get a hold of ourselves when we're in alcoholism, how many people won't end up on heroin? Alcohol is still the most widely abused drug. And most heroin addicts that I know, and I know many of them, and I have many in recovery that are friends that were heroin addicts, and they all unanimously say, my addiction started with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I feel like even if in women in particular, from what I've seen, even if they don't move on to harder drugs, the alcohol will kill you. If, if, and it won't be pretty. <laughs> I've seen more um, yellow women in the last three years than I've seen in the last 28 years. So what does that tell you? It's very scary that, I mean, I'm seeing them come into the hospital, and they're in their late 20s, early 30s, and I'm seeing them show up in recovery rooms, and you can tell their livers are gone. And I did not see that even 10 years ago to the degree that it is now. So you're absolutely right, Jean. This alcohol business is no less deadly. The fact that it's socially acceptable, you can't go anywhere without it being in your face, front and center, and women are just drinking, drinking, and they they don't understand how badly this is what it's doing to their bodies, you know. And one other thing I want to say about health is I look at all the women that were heavy drinkers when my sons were young. I was friends with a lot of these women. They're lovely people. But I can tell you a large number of them have had breast cancer. One just died two weeks ago with another kind of cancer. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of cancer in these women who were heavy drinking. And alcohol is a class one carcinogenic in the same category as asbestos. But we don't want to talk about that. Nobody wants to, they they still will justify it. I was telling that to my young sons, you know, (laughs) because they drink. And I'm like, hey, guys. Do you know this? Well, yeah, but that's their tell you. I mean, I am a little concerned. I've been going to Al-Anon, so I don't awfulize what may happen down the road. But, um, you know, just their answers are kind of, you know, like, okay. But, they're, yeah, because I always say, well, yeah, but. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're I, I have hope. Here, here in Canada, our Surgeon General actually um, announced last year or the year before that they, the official Canadian position is that there is there is no safe uh, amount of alcohol that you can drink when it comes to cancer. There's uh, it's a well, carcinogen. We, there's there's no safe amount. So, well, I amen mean, to him, and he needs to call our surgeon general because yeah. there's. Um, <laughs> well, it's it ain't catching problem. on, but it's it's well, been, it's the start. Here's the other problem. If some of these agencies like the NIAAA, National Institute of Alcoholism, I don't know, drug abuse or whatever, Mm -hmm. even two years ago when I was doing some research, they recommended for women no more than seven drinks a week, for men no more than nine. Well, since then, their recommendation has gone up 
to women any more than three drinks a day is dangerous drinking. So think about that. They're saying, go ahead and have 21 drinks a week. Well, come to find out, big alcohol has given money to the NIAAA. So is this why now all of a sudden their standards have changed? And so why aren't more Surgeon Generals talking about this? Why aren't more people exposing this? That it's almost like they're being paid off, and then all of a sudden now there's new guidelines that are more liquor-friendly. It's insane, and people are dying. Okay, that's gonna. Okay, that's your next book. I'm attaching you. <laughs> I'm gonna leave you uh, from our discussion today with an assignment, Lisa. <laughs> um, we're, we've run out of time, I'm afraid, and I still have a number of questions for you. But before I let you go, um, can you tell listeners where they can reach you and where they can buy your book? RaisingTheBottom.com, and I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Raising the Bottom, LB Speaks, and my book is available where books are sold pretty much anywhere online. I know you guys are in Canada, so that may actually, Amazon is probably your best bet. I'm not sure. I know like here in the States, you can get it online at Target, Walmart, Barnes and Nobles, you know, Kobo, wherever, but um, being in Canada, probably Amazon would be your best bet as far as I know. Okay. Most of our listeners are in the States, even though I'm in Canada. So I know that, oh, okay. well, uh, that they the will States, be able to get it. But books are sold, yeah. I mean, bookstores, mm-hmm. some have them, some don't. You know how that is. But any bookstore can order that. If you can and if listeners book. want to write to you directly, can they reach you through RaisingTheBottom.com? Yeah, yeah, you can subscribe to my blog or you can email me at info at raisingthebottom.com. And, um, yeah, so I'm out there. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> LBJ Author is my handle on Instagram and Twitter. Well, um, you are a busy lady, and I really appreciate uh, taking the time to chat with me today. And thank you for all that you're doing and for carrying on the legacy of of your mom's love for women and and passion for recovery. And I just thank you for being part of this whole movement and for sharing your story today. Well, I appreciate you having me, Jane. It's been wonderful talking with you. It's really, it's been an honor to be on such a popular podcast because I know you do a lot of great work yourself. And so that's neat. And I, are you going, I heard you're going to be in LA. Is this true? I am. I'm going to a conference in LA, the She Recovers Conference, which is uh, September 14th and right. 15th. Well, and, I'm going to be uh, there. I'm going to come find you. Oh, good. Well, we'll have a great big hug and uh, yes. high five, and maybe some listeners will will find us as well. That's great. That would well, be, I, I will know. see I'm you excited. there. Right. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, fantastic. Okay. Well, stay on the line, Lisa, and listeners. Thank you so much for listening today, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be. Cause you keep it
out 